Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Paul Mahoney, David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. We'll be discussing his new article, Soft Dollars, Hard Choices, Reconciling U.S. and EU Policies on Sell-Side Research, which is forthcoming in The Business Lawyer. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Paul, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Paul, I wondered if we could start the conversation by maybe touching on some of the concepts that you discuss in the paper. What is sell-side research? Who pays for it? What are soft dollars? And where does all of this fit into the scheme of U.S. securities regulation? We often informally divide the securities industry into the buy side and the sell side. The buy side consists of institutional money managers who invest either for themselves or on behalf of beneficiaries. So these would include mutual funds, insurance companies, pension plans, and so on. The sell side consists of investment banks and broker-dealers who hold inventories of securities for sale. When they decide whether to invest in a particular company or industry, the buy side uses qualitative and quantitative research information about the company's competitive environment, about the quality of its management. Uh, It uses various ratios and other information that can be gleaned from the company's financial statements. And it uses data derived from market research, social media engagements, and other public or proprietary sources. The money manager typically does some of that research in-house by employing what we call buy-side analysts. It also uses research that originates with broker-dealers who either do business or wish to do business with that investor, and that is sell-side research. If you're watching a TV program and the host is interviewing someone called a Wall Street analyst, that person is probably a sell-side analyst employed by a brokerage firm. There is also a relatively small amount of independent research that's produced by firms that are in the business neither of uh, investing in or selling securities. Soft dollars are credits that a broker gives an institutional customer specifically for the purpose of buying sell-side or independent research, and the amount of the credit is based on the amount of brokerage commissions that the customer pays. In short, they're a form of in-kind rebate. Now, that practice arose during the era of fixed brokerage commissions. The commission rate on a large trade was well above what would have been the market clearing level. Because brokers couldn't compete on price, they had to compete along other dimensions. Rebating back part of the commission in the form of research was just one solution. By the time fixed commissions ended in 1975, soft dollars had become commonplace in the industry, and the regulatory system had evolved to accommodate them, which made the practice durable. Today, soft dollar arrangements can be rather complex. There's a competitively determined level of brokerage commissions for execution only, that is to say, for the service of taking a customer order to the appropriate market and filling it there. 
a broker may charge institutional customers a commission that exceeds the execution-only level and then credit the customer with the excess. The credit can be explicit. The customer may have what amounts to a bank account uh, with a certain number of dollars in it, except that those dollars can be used only for the purchase of research. Now, the broker might administer that account itself, or it may outsource it to a third party. So the in-kind rebate has become pretty explicit. In the paper, you discuss two of the big players, two of the big actors within the financial industry. One is broker-dealers on one hand, and the other is registered investment advisors. As a matter of statutory scheme, what's the distinction between those two players? Or is there a clear line between them? Or have Congress and the SEC blurred that line at times? And if so, why? Well, the regulatory system tries to draw a line between broker-dealers who are in the business of executing securities transactions as agent or principal for their customers and investment advisors who are in the business of helping investors create and manage their portfolios. The two businesses use different compensation models, with broker-dealers typically charging a commission or markup on each transaction and investment advisors typically charging a percentage of the assets under management. From a regulatory perspective, though, as you would expect, the definition of each is somewhat overbroad. Now, brokers register with the SEC under the Securities Exchange Act, and investment advisors register under the Investment Advisors Act. Registered investment advisors are fiduciaries for their clients, so the distinction actually has some real consequences. Brokers owe certain duties to their customers specified by SEC or self-regulatory organization rules, but they're not fiduciaries. In fact, it's a challenge for a fiduciary to do business on a commission basis. Commissions create an incentive to maximize transactions, whereas what the investor cares about is designing and implementing an investment strategy and, of course, doing that at low cost. Now, having said that, brokers provide advice to their customers, just as a salesman for cars, clothes, artworks, or other goods advise their customers about what to buy. And the Advisors Act was drafted with that fact in mind. Its definition uh, of investment advisor excludes a broker so long as the provision of advice is solely incidental to the brokerage business and the broker receives no uh, quote-unquote special compensation for the advice. In other words, the Advisors Act assumes that brokers offer trade execution and research or other advice, but research and advice are not in some sense a separate product line. And that brings us back to the issue of soft dollars. For many years, the SEC has taken the position that this term special compensation means any compensation not structured as a brokerage commission or a markup. As a result, soft dollars went from being a workaround to fixed commissions to being a workaround to the Investment Advisors Act. Soft dollars allow brokers to sell research to a customer without becoming an investment advisor and therefore a fiduciary to that customer. 
Now, Congress got into the act, too. It facilitated the practice of soft dollar brokerage by adding Section 28E to the Exchange Act when fixed commissions ended in 1975. Section 28E allows an institutional money manager to pay brokerage commissions in excess of the execution-only level and receive research services in return for that access without violating its own fiduciary duties to its beneficiaries. Without that safe harbor, institutional asset managers and their brokers would be in a tough position. The normal rule of agency law is that a fiduciary, including an asset manager, can't receive benefits from third parties with whom it transacts on the principal's behalf, what we would just call kickbacks in ordinary language. Soft dollars are a form of benefit that the broker pays to the asset manager, and so they potentially violate that principle. Now, one obvious solution would be for the asset manager to pay the broker separately for research and just build that cost into its fee arrangements with its beneficiaries. Unfortunately, under the SEC's traditional interpretation, that solution would turn the broker into an investment advisor. And now it would be the broker who may be violating fiduciary duties by charging commissions rather than charging a management fee. That's the catch-22 at the core of the current conflict between U.S. and EU law. So let's maybe touch on that conflict a little bit. The U.S. has created this system that allows a little bit of blurring between brokerages and investment advisors on sell-side research. But what track has the EU taken? Uh, Why has it done that? And how does it intersect with or collide with even U.S. practice? The EU's framework for regulating secondary market participants is the recently revised Markets in Financial Instruments Directive, which is commonly known as MIFID II. Among other things, uh, MIFID II includes strict limits on what are called inducements, meaning third-party payments in connection with the provision of services to a beneficiary. It's essentially the same concept as the rule of agency law that I just mentioned. In the U.S., Congress legislated this safe harbor for soft dollars. The EU, though, has gone in the opposite direction. It's told asset managers that soft dollars constitute prohibited inducements in most circumstances. So that means a European asset manager, and possibly even any asset manager serving European clients, that is a little unclear, must pay for research separately from trade execution. The asset manager can pay it from its own pocket and increase its fee to the beneficiary to reflect the additional cost. Or alternatively, it can require the beneficiary to fund an account specifically earmarked for the purchase of research. What it can't do is bundle payments for research together with payments for trade execution. Now, in the U.S., the broker must bundle payments for research and payments for trade execution in order to avoid being regulated as an investment advisor. So there's a direct conflict now between U.S. and EU law. So what impact could MIFID be expected to have for U.S. broker-dealers? And has anything happened yet that might be reflective of that collision between EU and, and U.S. regulation? Well, given the conflict between U.S. and EU law, a U.S. broker that serves asset managers who are subject to EU law 
would be effectively barred from providing research to those customers given the typical U.S. compensation arrangements. Well, that, of course, caused considerable upset among U.S. broker-dealers and some of their asset manager clients as the January 2018 implementation date for MIFID II approached. Incidentally, this is not just a problem for the brokerage industry. If you suddenly remove a significant number of research providers from the market, the amount of research will presumably fall, at least in the short run, and maybe even in the long run, if independent providers can't take up the slack. If that happens, the market prices of securities could become less informative. So this is a social problem, not just an industry problem. Now, acting through their industry associations, the broker-dealers and asset managers in the U.S. requested no-action relief from the Securities and Exchange Commission. In the case of broker-dealers, they asked to be allowed to unbundle payments for brokerage and payments for research for customers subject to MIFID II. So, in other words, they wanted to be able to invoice those customers separately for execution and research. In the case of the asset managers, they ask to be allowed to use beneficiary resources to fund these separate accounts that MIFID II permits to pay brokers for research and have those payments qualify for the soft dollar safe harbor in Section 28E of the Exchange Act. The SEC granted the, the requested relief to both parties. Initially, that was for a period of 30 months, and subsequently it uh, extended it July 3, 2023. So it's kicked the can uh, rather far down the road. So the SEC has kicked the can down the road. At some point, the bill comes due, so to speak. What do you propose as a permanent fix to this distinction between EU and U.S. practice, and what motivates your proposal? So my proposal is straightforward. I think the SEC can and should eliminate the catch-22. In other words, it can simply declare that a broker that invoices a customer separately for research by that customer's request does not receive special compensation and therefore continues to qualify for the broker exclusion uh, from the Advisors Act uh, definition. The paper includes a mix of policy arguments and statutory interpretation arguments. I hope that the policy arguments are easy to understand. First and foremost, let's consider a broker who charges a customer who makes a 10,000 share trade, uh, $700 for brokerage and research in a single invoice, and then credits back $400 of that into a, some sort of research account. It doesn't seem like a very big deal for that broker to simply invoice the customer $300 for trade execution and then send a separate invoice of $400 for research. That seems like an accounting question, not a question of investor protection. And indeed, to some extent, the current practice is less aligned with the goal of investor protection than my proposal would be. The SEC's traditional stance that research has to be invoiced together with brokerage is paradoxical. It says, effectively, that a customer needs more protection when the broker's billing practices are transparent 
than it does when the billing practices are opaque because a transparent billing practices result in the broker being a fiduciary. Opaque billing practices don't. That seems backwards. We usually think of transparency as a partial solution to agency problems. In fact, one might look at that and say, yeah, this is great. So why shouldn't the SEC go all the way and adopt the MIFID II approach and require that research and brokerage be paid on an unbundled basis? I would say the argument in favor of the MIFID II approach is that many asset managers have somewhat unsophisticated beneficiaries. So think of a U.S. retail mutual fund, which has an asset manager regulated as an investment advisor, and that investment advisor serves the interests of mom-and-pop investors. The concern would be that when the investor pays directly for research, either by employing analysts or paying a third party for research from the advisor's own pocket, the resulting pass-through of that cost to the ultimate investors is transparent because that becomes part of the expense ratio that, that gets reported. Investors, so far as we can tell, pay a lot of attention to expense ratios, and so they'll know what they're paying once the payments are unbundled. By contrast, under the current soft dollar arrangements, research is purchased through brokerage commissions, and brokerage commissions are accounted for as part of the purchase or sales price of the stocks or bonds, not as an expense. So the retail investor conceivably could be tricked into thinking that it's getting a great deal because the management fee and the other expenses look low without realizing that brokerage commissions are high. The counter-argument is that investors can observe realized returns, which include the effects of brokerage fees. So in my view, whether soft dollar arrangements harm investors is an empirical question. Um, and there's not at present strong evidence showing that soft dollar arrangements leave mutual fund investors worse off. And absent compelling evidence, I would default to the principle of contractual freedom. If the broker and the asset manager want to bundle both services together for a single payment, that's fine. If they want to price them separately, that's fine too. So those are the policy issues. The statutory interpretation issue is that there are several different plausible meanings of this phrase, special compensation, contained in the Investment Advisors Act. One could certainly argue that any compensation in excess of the execution-only level is special compensation. Now, if you take that position, that would turn essentially every broker in the country other than discount brokers into investment advisors because they charge premium commissions and add on research and other services in return. The SEC has rejected that meaning of the phrase special compensation. The SEC's view of the matter is that the amount of the commission doesn't matter, but the form of the payment does. So when the broker charges a premium commission for a bundle of brokerage and research services, that's fine. The broker's not receiving special compensation. But when it charges the same amount, but in two invoices rather than one, that is special compensation. I would just take the SEC's view one step further and say it doesn't matter 
whether that payment for a bundled package of trade execution research is divided into two invoices or put together in one single invoice. If the broker, again, can charge $700 for trade execution and research, and we observe that it only charges $300 for execution only, both of which the SEC thinks are perfectly fine, then it ought to be able to charge $400 for research only without an associated trade execution. So as long as the amount paid for research alone is no greater than it would be if it were bundled as part of the uh, brokerage product, then in my view, the broker isn't receiving special compensation for research. Now, I think we can be pretty confident that the brokers won't in fact, be able to charge more for research as a sort of separate product than it would be as part of a bundled product. I mean, that's the beauty of giving the broker and the customer the choice between bundling and unbundling. The customer will select the option that's less expensive, all things considered. So if the customer has the option, the SEC, I think, can rest assured that the customer is no worse off from unbundling the product than the customer is from bundling the products. Now, there will be some customers, those in Europe, who won't actually have a choice because of the MIFID II requirements. But as long as the U.S. customers have the choice, I would think that competition and customer choice will produce research charges that reflect the cost of that service as a standalone service. So were I the SEC, I'd write a rule that says as long as the broker offers the customer the option to bundle or unbundle, the customer's decision to unbundle does not result in special compensation for the broker. Now, you might or might not think that this is the best reading of the statute. Maybe you're more persuaded by the SEC's current stance or even more persuaded by the most restrictive approach that I first outlined. Fortunately, that doesn't matter. If I've persuaded you, and I hope I have, that the phrase special compensation is susceptible to several different meanings, then under Chevron, the SEC can select any one of those meanings through notice and comment rulemaking. That should be especially easy here because the statute gives the SEC the explicit authority to define uh, what it refers to as technical trade and other terms used in the statute. And it seems to me quite clear that the term special compensation is a technical or trade term uh, as it is used in the statute. So the SEC has the authority to define it in the way I've suggested. Now, if the SEC does this, that would eliminate the conflict between U.S. and EU law. Brokers could invoice research and execution separately for those customers subject to EU law uh, or any other customer who wishes uh, to do it. And um, that would presumably be a decision that other customers would make based on which is the least cost option, all things considered. So competition would set the compensation level for sell-side research, just as it does today, but it would do it in a more transparent fashion. And that seems to me to be a win for everyone. Paul, what key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this article and this conversation? And what open questions in this area do you see? 
So I think a broader intellectual lesson here, one that I hope is interesting even to scholars who might not care about the specific conflict between U.S. and EU law that I've dealt with, is the long shadow cast by the New York Stock Exchange's history of fixed commissions, even 45 years after they were abandoned. A remarkable number of issues with which the SEC is currently struggling, the structure of secondary trading markets generally, how to enhance liquidity in the trading of small cap stocks, whether it should permit alternative trading systems to continue to operate without publicly disclosing the prices of resting quotations. These all reflect, to one degree or another, the legacy of fixed commissions. The institutional investors' Uh, investor communities' desire to work around fixed commissions generated an entire ecosystem, soft dollars, the evolution of uh, regional exchanges from listing markets to venues for trading NYSE-listed stocks, the growth of the so-called third market, the block trading mechanism. That entire ecosystem lived on after fixed commissions had disappeared. We're still living in the world that fixed commissions made. It's a fascinating example of path dependency uh, in markets and in the law. Our guest today has been Paul Mahoney, David and Mary Harrison, Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. We discussed his forthcoming article, Soft Dollars, Hard Choices, Reconciling U.S. and EU Policies on Sell-Side Research, which will be published this summer in The Business Lawyer. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Paul, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.